Amen. Well, Graham, you sound worse talking than you do singing. Amen. Uh, thankful, brother, for leading us faithfully uh, this morning in such great songs that have prepared our hearts and our praise um, for the Lord and for our time in the Word. So if you got a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. And we, in this passage and in our time in celebrating Christ uh, through the Lord's Supper, will, uh, we will see exactly what we just sang, that Christ died to become our Savior. Uh, that Christ rose to become our Lord, and that Christ will return one day uh, to judge. And for all those who repent and believe, He will bring us to be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter 15, I'm going to read verse 1 through 13, and I would encourage you, um, just as a, a matter of good Bible reading to look for a similar pattern in verse 1 through 6 as well as in verse 7 through 13. See if in 7 through 13 you see a similar pattern. I'll point it out to you later. I just wanted to note that for you that you might look for that yourself as a good Bible reader. Romans 15 and in verse 1, Paul begins, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." Verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Would you bow before the Lord once more with me and as we ask the Lord for His help? Father, I, I thank You for these words in this closing section of Romans 14 and 15 as we see you are giving us instruction of how we as a church are to act to one another. And yet we see that the way that we are to act is not just because you've said so, but it's because you have done so for us and because you have said so. And so, Lord, may we see that even more clearly this morning, what you have done and what you have said, that we as a local church um, might do these things well, that we might not please ourselves, but please one another, that we might not shun one another, but welcome one another. 
Lord, I pray that you would help me as I aim to make these things clear that uh, have been made clear to me this week through your Holy Spirit and with other brothers uh, in the study. And God, I just pray that you would uh, mold us more and more into the image of Christ as a church and that maybe some here uh, might repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus alone who saves and be welcomed into the body of Christ. And lastly, Lord, I, I pray that you might take some of us who are here, who have a heart for those who have yet to hear, and send us to wherever you would have us go to make this good news known to any who would listen. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> um, maybe something you don't know about me is that when I was in elementary school, I went to a private school and I had the privilege of transferring to public school in seventh grade with no friends, uh, no nothing, all new classes. And one of the joys of transferring meant that you got the last choice of elective of all of the other people that got to get into school. I got the last choice, so there was no other electives available to me except for choir, just the place that a seventh grade boy wants to be uh, in, in public school for your first year, um, which if I were a little bit more mindful, I probably could have realized the opportunity that was there amongst all of the other ladies in the choir class as well, but, but I did not realize that at that age. Uh, nevertheless, I am thankful for that time because during that time, I learned to read music, uh, a, a gift and a skill that I have much forgotten uh, to this day because there's no music on the screens and I don't have to practice this uh, anymore. But I was reminded last week uh, what a gift it is and what a, what a great skill it is to be able to read music. I'm so thankful for Graham and Preston and Olivia and, and Daniel. He doesn't sing, but I know he can read music and play. And others who help us in our worship team for um, being able to use their gifts and skills and sing harmonies for us to hear. Uh, and Graham wanted me to encourage you, if you are able to sing those harmonies, that you would join with the person singing with Graham week in and week out to sing those harmonies. And as I said last week, I was with uh, James and Brian, and we had the privilege of getting together with many other pastors late one night after some uh, business meetings at the uh, SBC annual meeting. Uh, several hundred uh, brothers and pastors for probably 25, 30 minutes singing a cappella hymns in multiple parts. Now, I was singing the main part, <laughs> the only part I knew, but you could just hear around us uh, guys that could sing the bass part, others that could sing the tenor, probably some that could sing the girl parts. I don't know. But they, it was just so rich, so full to be able to hear uh, all of these different voices and these um, different melodies that put together make a harmony. And it's that word that our text uses this morning to describe the way in which we are to act together as a church. Um, different and yet um, when brought together uh, make such a, a beautiful noise or look beautiful together. I, I wrote some definitions of um, that word uh, harmony, musically, it would be the combination of simultaneously sounded musical notes to produce chords. Uh, so at one point, I learned to play the guitar very, very not well. Uh, but I even wore my guitar socks this morning to remind us when Cram's playing those chords, uh, they are creating a harmony of a sense, different notes that together are making a, a, a good sound together. Um, more generally, you could use that word harmony um, to define what might be applied well to uh, our conversation this morning, a consistent, orderly, 
or pleasing arrangement of parts. A consistent, orderly, or pleasing arrangement of parts. So if applied to the the church, the body of Christ, uh, it would be individuals, uh, different members of our church, orderly, consistently, um, pleasing, uh, arra- a pleasing arrangement of, of parts. Paul has used this word already in the book of Romans. We looked at it in Romans uh, 12.3. We, we saw it again in Romans 12.16 uh, where um, Paul uh, quotes from the Old Testament uh, where he encourages us Uh, to live in harmony with one another. Uh, This is uh, an important challenge for us that we ought to live, though as different parts, in harmony, in in, uh, a pleasing arrangement with one another. And Paul's going to tease out what that really means for us this morning. And so have that picture in the back of your mind. As I mentioned in the reading of our Scripture this morning, I mentioned that there seemed to me to be a pretty clear pattern in these two different sections. I wonder if you saw some similar aspects uh, to them. Uh, If not, I want to give them to you, see if maybe you see them as well, and encourage you as you're reading your Bible on your own time that uh, if you're reading chunks of Scripture like this, that you might look for patterns like this. For if the Holy Spirit inspired God's Word and, and our writers wrote them down in this way, they might help us to apprehend what God is meaning for us in this, in this text. And so uh, this morning, if you're, um, if you're taking notes, I, I put this even on the notes page before I get to my two main points this week. I want you to look for, for these things. A clear command a Christ-like example, a scriptural foundation, and a pastoral prayer. A clear command, a Christ-like example, a scriptural foundation, and a pastoral prayer. In 15, 1 through 2, you'll see the command, and then you're going to see the phrase, for Christ. And we're going to see the example of Christ as one of the reasons for which we ought to obey that command. Then you're going to see in in 15.3, as it is written, uh, Paul giving us God's Word from the Old Testament as uh, a theological foundation for living out that command. And then in 15.5-6, you're going to see this phrase, may the God, and on and on and on, which is Paul pausing after giving a command and Christ's example and quoting God's Word, he pauses to pray and says, may, may God do this in you. And it's that same pattern that you're going to see in the following verses in 7-13. through 13, A command in verse 7. A Christ-like example in verse 8. And as it is written four times in 9-12. through 12, And then a pastoral prayer in verse 13. May the God. So as we look through those, I, I hope that those might be uh, a helpful memory tool for you, but also uh, helpful for us to... Uh, really understand what God has for us here. Again, in addition to that structural kind of note there, let me encourage you in, in this first section, in 15, 1 through 6, to note this regarding this idea of glorifying God in harmony with one another. The first point that I'd encourage you to write down is that we ought to please one another since Christ has pleased you. We ought to please one another since Christ has pleased you. Romans 14 through 15, 13 uh, is an entire section regarding how we as the church are to be treating one another. And it's really been a discussion about how the strong are to relate to the weak and how the weak 
are to relate to the strong. And this does not, strong and weak are not describing Christian maturity, but Christian conscience. Um, Those who have a strong conscience in this area are those who have a weak conscience in this area. And vice versa, those same people who may be strong in one area may also be weak in conscience in another area. And we need to remember that. And it's how we're to be treating one another in the church. And 14.1 started with this command that we are to welcome one another. And really that command there focused uh, on the strong welcoming the weak. But throughout the entire passage, you can see that it's really applied on both sides. Uh, That we are to be a welcoming people. That we are to have... Uh, unity in the essentials, in the, our faith in Jesus Christ, that we're to have unity in the gospel, uh, but that there might be diversity uh, among some of the non-essentials uh, in, our, in and among our church. Um, not things in regards to our, our, our beliefs in our statement of faith, Um, but those things of how we practice uh, that faith in our normal everyday lives. That there would be unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and yet charity in all things. That there ought to be a loving, welcoming attitude among all of us uh, towards those who are weaker in conscience in some and those who are stronger in conscience than other. And it's that idea that, that, that Paul is really summarizing in 15 verse 1. You can see there he includes himself among the strong. We who are strong, Paul says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Or more literally, that word there, rather than failings, I think would be maybe a little bit more helpful and not put the wrong idea in our mind as if a weakness is a failing. Uh, But we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. The weaknesses of the weak. It it carries the idea, parents, um, you, you know this, or maybe you've been on a hiking, backpacking trip uh, or, or parents, uh, you've been um, bringing your little one along, and, and what are you carrying? You're carrying a bag full of stuff. Now, you're not looking at your little one saying, you know, carry your own diaper bag, bring your own snacks, you know, uh, or, or you're going on a backpacking trip, uh, and those who are able are able to carry a little bit more of the gear than those who maybe younger or weaker in that. And we're to bear up in the weaknesses of the weak. Those who are stronger in areas of conscience are to come alongside those who are weaker in those areas and bear up their weaknesses, encourage them, strengthen them, build them up. This is what Paul has been talking about up to this point. He says we're to bear up with the with the weaknesses of the weak and not, listen, not to please ourselves. The focus, the attention is to be on one another, not on ourselves. And then we see this very clear command, let each of us please his neighbor. Please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We have this clear command, as I mentioned to you structurally here, that this present tense command, one that ought to continue on and on and on throughout our Christian life with those around us, that we are to please, not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor for his good, not for our good, though pleasing our neighbor for his good will in turn down the road end up also being for our good as well and for God's glory. But we're to be doing this for their good. Uh, Our efforts ought to be building them up, not for sure not tearing them down, 
and for sure not focusing on building ourselves up. We're to be serving them, pleasing them. John Stott, I thought, noted well that, that when you hear that phrase, at least in our, our, our culture and our day and age, when you think about pleasing your neighbor, uh, please know Paul is not saying that you ought to be a people pleaser. You're not to live in such a way that you just aim to please all the people around you and try to just make everybody happy. But you're to please your neighbor in a, in a godly way, in a service way, in a way that's in accordance with God, in a way that's in accordance with uh, the Word of God, um, that's best for the people of God. We're not to be people pleasers. We're to be God pleasers. We're to remember that God is watching over us. As Paul mentioned just earlier in, the, in these passages, um, that we will stand before the Lord one day, accountable to Him and to Him alone. So when you hear this clear command to please your neighbor, please don't hear me or Paul or for sure the Lord saying, be a people pleaser. For that's not what the Lord is getting at here. Uh, we will be helped if we'll continue on, not just hearing this clear command and trying to guess at what Paul is meaning uh, by that, but Paul has got a very clear structural argument here where he gives us this clear command, but then he gives us the, uh, a, a Christ-like example. Look in verse 3. We see the phrase, for Christ. Uh, why are we to please our neighbor for his good and to build him up? For Christ did not please himself. Christ did not leave heaven to come to the earth, to take on flesh, uh, to suffer, to live a perfect and sinless, obedient life, to suffer and die, to be buried in the tomb um, simply for his sake. Though it was for His glory, he, he came not to simply please Himself. He came to please us. He came to save us. He came to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And in doing that, it did end up pleasing Him and glorifying Him. Um, but, but Paul makes it abundantly clear that we're to please our neighbor because Christ did not come to please Himself. He could have stayed in heaven and pleased Himself, but He came to please us. Uh, he came to live for us. He came to die for us. He came to rise for us. He came to ascend for us, to intercede on our behalf at the right hand of God. Christ is our example in this. And, and Paul would then go even another step, not only saying this is how Christ acted on, on your behalf, but he uses another phrase that in, introduces another section of this argument, as it is written. As it is written. Once in this first section, four times in this later section, a phrase that when you're reading your Bible, you... You ought to pause and look at maybe a footnote that you have in your Bible and see where that was originally written. To pause for a moment from your regular Bible reading in the New Testament and, and think what did Paul have in his mind when he quoted this verse from the Old Testament. Go read that story. Go read that section of, of Scripture to try to consider what the Lord had and what Paul quotes from in the middle of verse 3, as it is written, comes from Psalm 69. And in verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about, uh, in the Old Testament, before Christ left heaven and came to earth, it's a song. It's a, a psalm about uh, the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, who He would be, what He would look like, what He would do. And in that psalm, especially in, in verse 9, what 
what David was highlighting in that, in that psalm and what Paul is bringing out in that psalm uh, is that the reproaches uh, of those who reproached you fell on me. Uh, when, when the psalmist writes that, of the coming Messiah who ends up being Jesus, uh, the psalmist is saying that the reproaches of God would fall on Jesus. That all of the criticisms and all of the insults and all of the sufferings that man had towards God would end up falling on Jesus. And so we see a picture here that what Paul is arguing is exactly right. Jesus did not come to please himself, for he came to bear the insults. He came to bear the, the strugglings. He came to bear the criticisms. He came to bear the sufferings of those who reproached God, of those who had insults for God. Uh, Jesus himself was God. He is the God-man, and He came to bear in human form those reproaches that people had for Him. Uh, Paul is not only giving us a Christ-like example as the foundation and the root for us, not pleasing ourselves but pleasing others, uh, but he also gives us a scriptural foundation because it would be uh, too easy for Paul to just say, don't please yourselves, please others, because I said so. And, and, and if that command was not rooted in Christ himself and not rooted in God's word, um, then when the, the temptation comes to please ourselves and not to please others, when it becomes much harder to please others than it is to please ourselves, we would be so tempted and, and um, very or, or more easily uh, explain that away to say, well, in this situation, I'm not going to do that. But we have an example of Christ who never did that. Never in, in any situation. And so he's, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, a sympathetic high priest. He's a sympathetic people pleaser, uh, if you will. Uh, we have God's Word giving us great reason to seek to please others rather than pleasing ourselves, even when we're insulted, even when we're criticized, even when we suffer at the hands of those who are against the Lord and against us. We have an example in Christ and God's Word guiding us in this direction. Paul will go on not only quoting that, but he explains it a bit more in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days, speaking of the Scripture that he just quoted from Psalm 69, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Notice that Paul quoted one part of one Scripture in the Old Testament. And yet in this verse 4, it's just a, this is one of those verses that show us what we are to believe about God's Word. Because Psalm, the Psalms were written for, for people 800, uh, 900 years before the time of Christ. And yet Paul is saying that those things that were written 900 years before were written for us. Even though they were written to a people then, they are written for us now, Paul says. And if that was true of Paul then, that's also true of us now as well. For those things that are written, it's not just that one verse. Paul, Paul says, for whatever was written in the Scriptures in the former days, it was written for our instruction in the first century. And church, I would say it's written for our instruction in the 21st century. 
that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Two things we, three things we desperately need, encouragement and endurance in the Christian journey, in the pilgrim's progress. We need encouragement and endurance. And where are we to find those things? In God's Word. That's where we're to find those things. When God's Word brings our attention on the Lord Himself and the very Spirit of God whom He's given to us to strengthen us in those moments. Which is why when Paul moves into verse 5, having spoken of the need of endurance and encouragement in the Scriptures that give us hope, he pauses his theological argument and just bows his head and just closes his eyes. And, and if he's handwriting this out, he's able to do this uh, while head is bowed and eyes is closed. But he just pauses to pray. He just pauses to pray. You can see this prayer of blessing in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a prayer. What a, what a moment to pause for, for Paul to, to say to, to his audience, the church in Rome then, and, and for our instruction now. Don't please yourself, church. Please your neighbor. For Christ came to please not himself, but us, and to please the Lord. He we have theological, scriptural foundation in this as well. And then to just go to the Lord and say, God, would you do this in us? We need endurance. We need encouragement. You're the God of endurance. You're the God of encouragement. Lord, you grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Why? So that together, church, that together you may with one voice, though maybe singing different parts, <laughs> we glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in harmony. This is what Paul was aiming for as he's closing this, this section, uh, for us to be like that that chord on the guitar or the, that beautiful harmony when you listen to people sing different parts in, in a cappella. Uh, this is what the Lord is aiming for among us, not just musically, though I would love to hear it musically among our church, uh, but spiritually among our church. Unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, but love, uh, charity, in all things, harmony, that we would be able to glorify God with one voice. And if it was Paul's, um, of Paul's heart and of Paul's mind to just pause after giving that clear command and Christ-like example and scriptural foundation to pastorally pray for the church at Rome in that moment and to not continue before doing so, why not we pause in this moment and just ask that the Lord would do this in us? Would you bow your head? Would you pause for a moment in the midst of this time? And would you just pray to the Lord? And I will close us. But just say, God, may you do this in me. May you do this in us. Would you pray for a moment?
God, we acknowledge that you are the God of all creation. We acknowledge that you have made us in your image. And you've made us to display your glory around the world. And how can we display your glory in one voice, in beautiful harmony, unless we are living in harmony with one another? For Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you reside in perfect harmony. And may we, as your church, forgiven of our sins, saved in faith through faith in Jesus Christ, redeemed, reconciled, may we aim to please one another, not to please ourselves. May we live in uh, perfect harmony one another. May your Spirit do that work in us that we might endure, that we might be encouraged and, and have this desire among us and that it may abound in hope, Lord. I, I pray that you would do this in our church, in the individual parts and in us as a whole that when people look at us, they more, they more clearly see who you are. I ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Paul says amen at that prayer, he jumps right back in in verse 7 in, in this second part of uh, this, close, this section closing Romans 14 and 15 in verse 7 where he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And, and so I say to you too, second point then, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. As I noted earlier, we see this command earlier in 14.1, but Paul brings it back up here in closing, kind of like bookends of this entire section here. And the earlier command he gave, he said that you are to welcome one another for God has welcomed you. Welcome one another, or I could say because God has welcomed you. That's the reason we are to welcome one another. But here Paul uses a, a little bit different language. Here he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Yes, God has welcomed you, and that's the reason we're to welcome one another. But here Paul is using a different word, one of comparison, like a simile, like or as. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another in the way that Christ has welcomed uh, you. And so how has Christ welcomed us? That's a good question to ask. We could think back to the Gospels and think of all the ways that He welcomed um, the people around Him, the children around Him, the righteous around Him, the sinners around Him. Um, those who were strong in conscience, those who were weak in conscience. We could think about uh, a ton of different ways if we just paused for a second to, um, to share different things of, of ways that Christ welcomed and, and then try to apply those to our lives. But Paul has uh, some specifics in mind, and he gives us some of those specifics. Look in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. And so here we have transitioned from the clear command of Scripture into this Christ-like example. Just like in the, the first section of chapter 15, in verse 3, for Christ did not please Himself. Here Paul says, for I tell you that Christ... And so he puts Christ as one of the foundations for why we are to welcome one another. Not only the foundations, but the example in how we are to do that. For I tell you that Christ 
became a servant to the circumcised. That is, to the Jews. And if you've been with us in our study of Romans, you might think back to before chapter 14 where there were many conversations and many explanations of uh, how the church was to relate to one another between Jew and Gentile, uh, between those who were God's chosen specific people from the Old Testament to those whom were welcomed in uh, in the Old Testament, but even more so in uh, the time of Christ. And Paul makes note of Christ being our example and saying that He became a servant. How are we to welcome one another? We're to be like Christ who became a servant. And Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews. Why? To show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness, to show that God was not man, that He should lie, um, or a son of man, that He should change His mind. Uh, Jesus came to serve the Jews to show that what God said would happen, that God is truthful, that God is trustworthy. Paul, Paul says that Christ coming to serve and to show God's truthfulness w- would do two things. We see that in order that, or in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And so you think about this entire verse, the logic of this verse, Christ, we are to welcome one another like Christ welcomed us. How did Christ welcome us? Christ came to serve the Jews, to show the truthfulness of God, so that everything that God said in the past would come true, and that all of God's Word would be seen as trustworthy able to be believed, able to build your life upon, able to, be, to find encouragement, able to find strength to endure, able to find hope for the future. For if all of the promises of the past have come true, then we know the promises that have yet to come true will find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so the first in order that is so that all of God's promises in the past would come true. Christ came to serve, to fulfill all of the hundreds of messianic prophecies, the prophecies um, of the coming Savior. Jesus fulfilled them perfectly so that God's Word would, would be trustworthy. But not only that God's Word would be trustworthy and to confirm the promises given to the, the, the patriarchs or the Jews. But in verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Christ came to serve and to lay His life down as a ransom for many so that God's Word would be trusted and that all of God's promises would come true. And in order that not only would the Jews find God's Word trustworthy, but the Gentiles would begin to worship God for His mercy. That when Christ Jesus, the Messiah, would come and give His life uh, as a ransom for many, the Gentiles would see what Christ did and they would worship Him for His mercy. For not giving them what they deserve and instead taking upon himself the reproaches um, that people had given towards God to bring about essentially salvation for the Gentiles. Christ welcomed us by serving 
Christ welcomed us by serving. And Paul writes later in Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest pictures of Christ's service uh, to the world in that Christ became a servant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, Christ served in lots of individual ways during his life here on this earth. You can think of one of his most picturesque moments of serving when he washed his disciples' feet uh, on the night that he was betrayed in that upper room. But it was later the next day when he served to the uttermost and gave his life as a ransom for many. And so this is this is how Christ served. And if, that's, if we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, then we too are, need to welcome one another by serving in that way. Yes, serving in lots of um, small, tangible ways that can be felt uh, in the presence of others. But be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible even goes on to say that, that the world will know that you, John 13, 35, the world will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another, in the way that you lay down your lives for one another. And this is what Paul was describing as well. The Gentiles would glorify God when Christ came to serve. And they would glorify God for His mercy, for not giving them the punishment they deserve and putting the punishment on Christ who came to serve them. But it's not just a Christ-like example. It's a scriptural foundation. Four times you'll see, as it is written, again it is said, and again in verse 11, in verse 12, and again Isaiah says. And just look at what Paul is trying to highlight, saying this isn't something new. The Gentiles glorifying God for His mercy is not something new. It's not, not some new part of God's plan once Jesus came to die. This was a part of the plan from the Old Testament. And you'll notice that Paul is, is quoting from every part of Old Testament Scripture here. The Pentateuch, the historical books, the Psalms, and the prophets. From four different sections of the Old Testament, Paul is quoting here to make it abundantly clear. And look, they all have this same theme. That is the theme that we saw in the end of verse 9 in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. And here he quotes from Psalm 18, in verse 49, as well as 2 Samuel 22:50. It's in both places. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That even in the Old Testament, among God's people... There was the idea of them being in such harmony and unity with one another that would end up resulting in praise and worship to God that the Gentiles would look into the people of God and see who God is and see uh, people praising and singing your name, O Lord. What we're talking about doing here was what God's desire was for the Jews in the Old Testament times. But not only to sing God's praise among the Gentiles, and it was in hopes that the Gentiles would join them in that singing. Look in verse 10, and again it is said, and here he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 48, a, a command to those Gentiles who are among them, seeing them with one voice praising God. It's a command to the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. 
Church, we ought to be like God's people of the Old Testament in such harmony with one another through faith in Jesus Christ, um, praising God for His mercy that when any guest comes to join us on a Sunday, when any um, worker here at the YMCA comes in um, to be able to hear us, when the, the members of the Y see us as a church walking out and them as members of the Y walking in to work out, um, when they see us, when your neighbors see you as a church gathering together in your small group uh, to sing praise and to talk about God and to give Him honor and glory, uh, we ought to encourage them to join in with us. It ought to be so attractive to them to see many different people unified in the essentials of the gospel, worshiping and praising God that they say, I want in on that. I don't see that in the world. I don't see that type of unity. I don't see that type of harmony anywhere else. But I see it here. What is it that unites you? And we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel and, and encourage them. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with us, God's people. Or again, Paul quotes Psalm 117 and verse 1, the, the middle and shortest chapter of our Bible, though it wouldn't have been true of Paul's Bible. Nevertheless, he, he quotes verse 1 of Psalm 117 saying, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him an encouragement to anyone and everyone that would be willing to listen to praise the Lord. And again, Isaiah says, then in the prophets, Isaiah says in Isaiah 11.1, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Our hope, the world's hope, is in Jesus Christ who came to serve. And we're to welcome one another uh, in the body of Christ. We're to serve one another in the body of Christ. And anyone in the world, in the community around us who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and believing upon Him for the salvation of their souls. We're to welcome into this, this body, this gathering of believers, that they too might rejoice, that they too might praise, that they too might be just a, another note in the beautiful harmony that our church is singing into the world around us. That was... Paul's scriptural foundation, and it's a, it's a strong one, but like the first section, he ends with a pastoral prayer. Like we saw in verse 5, may the God, we see in verse 13 again, may the God, this time, may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Where are we going to get this filling of joy and peace. It's in faith, in believing. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the God of hope will fill us with joy and peace. Two things that we have yet to see on the news, it seems like in our lifetime. doesn't matter how old you are. And yet, two things that should characterize a church that lives in harmony with one another. Peace and joy through faith. Why? So that, Paul's telling us why we ought to, why he's praying that God would fill us with these things. So that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul commands for us to welcome one another in the church as Christ has welcomed us. And he gives a scriptural foundation. But he returns back to the Lord remembering how this is really going to be brought about. Yes, we are to do our part and to obey God's Word and to follow Christ's example. 
But Paul pauses to pray and say, God, our, our hope, our strength um, in doing these things is going to come from you. So, Lord, do it. Have your way in us. And I want to pause in closing and pray that that would be true of us as well. And we're going to have the opportunity to uh, physically, as we've practiced the past several weeks in these passages, um, in harmony, stand together, to sing together, to eat bread together, to, to drink juice together in remembrance of Christ, in remembrance of Christ's death in remembrance of Christ's shedding of his blood, in remembrance of Christ aiming not to please himself, but to please us, in remembrance of Christ not um, welcoming himself, but aiming to welcome us, knowing that we would only be welcomed into the family of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have a wonderful opportunity to sing, maybe in harmony, but to sing nonetheless um, for the glory of God, but in one voice. And we have the opportunity to, to eat and drink in remembrance of Christ together as a beautiful reminder of the spiritual unity and harmony that we have through faith in Jesus being united by his very Holy Spirit. So would you bow with me and let me pray as we prepare to sing and as we prepare to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Father, may you, the God of all hope, fill us with all joy and peace through faith so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. Father, thank you for doing what we could not do for ourselves. Our unity as a church is to shine brightly in stark contrast to the disunity and darkness of the world. And I pray that would be true. God, make us aware of ways that we have yet to please our neighbor. Make us aware of ways in which we have fallen short in welcoming one another. Lord, forgive us and help us to press forward in following Christ's example, in obeying Your Word, being strengthened by Your Holy Spirit to live in this way. For Your honor, and for your glory, may we live in harmony and in unity with one another for your glory among our community and among our world so that many in our community and many in our world would see what you've done in us and would come to join us, uh, repenting of their sins believing and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls and joining us in praise, joining us in song, joining us at your table to break bread and to eat in remembrance of Christ's body and to drink the juice in remembrance of Christ's blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that you would do that in us for your glory, for our good, but also for others' salvation. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, guests alike, I want to invite you, if you have repented of your sins, believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, and have followed Him in baptism, I want to invite you to stand with us as a church and to come down these aisles on the outside and to break of, of the bread and to take the cup and to go back to your seats and let's practice singing melody or harmony with one another. And then we will together eat together and drink together 
uh, as a way of remembering Christ together. So would you stand with me? And Christian, come and break and take, and we will eat and drink together in a moment.